0: Time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. Boy, have we got a program lined up for you today. As you know, I'm traveling, recording this in the lovely city of Schomburg, Illinois, part of the greater Chicagoland suburbs. I'm out here for the reveal now conference, otherwise known as the Secret Sensitive Movement 2.0. Apparently they didn't get 1.0 right because uh, they made a whole bunch of churches that were attracting a lot of people and uh, guess what? They weren't making any disciples. <laughs> yeah, but we've got big churches and that's all that matters. Just big churches big churches. Anyway, we'll talk about the Reveal now, the reveal Now conference later in the week. And uh, today uh, I got lined up for you an interview I did with Doug Paget of the Emergent Church. Read his book. His latest book is called A Christianity Worth Believing, a hope-filled, open-armed, alive and well faith for the left out, left behind, and let down in us all. A Christianity worth believing well we'll leave that up to you whether or not it's worth believing his version of Christianity or not and uh, did an interview with Doug and uh, the interview is just about an hour long and I thought what we would do is just get right into it just as a little bit of a heads up if you were expecting that I was going to be debating the mighty Doug Paget, uh, then uh, then this interview is going to uh, let you down the purpose of this interview is not to debate Doug Paget. This is not a polemical interview. The, the, really, the goal of this interview was to let Doug Paget speak for himself and to uh, help you better understand what it is that he is thinking and teaching and believing and promoting as part of one of the leaders of the emergent church movement. Doug's got his own set of opinions and reasons why he believes those opinions, and it's rooted in his experience and the one thing I like about the emergent church is that the more these guys write, the better radar fix we get on their theology and their ideas. A few years ago, uh, listening to emergent church guys and trying to figure out what it is they believed and taught was pretty much uh, similar to trying to nail jello to a wall. Well, that's those that day's passed. The more the emergent guys write, the more we've realized what they think and believe. And so really the idea here in this interview was to let Doug Paget speak and for me to ask follow-up questions based upon my reading of his book. I hope that you enjoy it. I hope that you learn something from it. And in the days ahead, and maybe next week, depending on uh, my travel schedule and my time to really spend some time uh, digging into this, uh, we'll be doing some uh, some review and critique of the things that Doug said. And uh, we'll go from there. So, with that in mind, let's dive into our interview with Doug Paget of the Emergent Church. Well, then let's go ahead and lead off with the first question. Um, why did you write this book, A, a Christianity Worth Believing? What problem, uh, were, what problem or problems were you trying to address and solve in writing this book?
1: Well, you know, like a lot of people who write who write books, it had uh, a couple of starts to it. So, in some ways, the book that now exists. Uh, wasn't the one I initially set out to write, because so it got recast and reframed as the writing process went along. But um, and that happened to me on three different occasions. But in all those uh, ideations of the book, I was trying to um, put forward a, uh, a hopeful and invitational um, presentation of Christianity, so that people who felt that either their past experience with Christianity or the one that they had heard about um, and didn't work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, could be explained in some ways that would make sense as to why they feel like they really want to be part of this Jesus story, but the versions of Christianity that they've heard uh, don't seem to fulfill that same yearning. So in a lot of ways, this is an evangelistic book. It's a book for people who have struggled with faith and are not sure why. And So what I try to do in the book was use my own story to say, Look, there's a lot of different ways people explain Christianity, and if you run into an explanation that doesn't work for you, it's helpful to know that that works for somebody else, and um, they're not trying to be—they're uh, not trying to, uh, to make it hard on you. They're not trying to make Christianity into something that uh, would would be a frustration for you. They're expressing Christianity in a way that makes sense to them. Okay. And uh, so I try to do the same thing in the hopes that there were some people who would. Who would find the explanation that I give, the, uh, the invitation.
0: Okay, so in your explanation, you talk about uh, visiting a passion play. And um, and you, you were not a Christian prior to visiting this passion play. And, um, and th- this was kind of a pivotal moment in your life as far as seeing the story of Jesus Christ played out in this passion play, uh, what happened to you afterwards when you were invited backstage, and then, uh, and then in meeting with uh, people who were Christians, who wanted to explain the faith to you. Do you mind spending a little time talking about that experience?
1: Oh, no, I don't mind at all. I'd be glad to. Yeah, I, I, I grew up in a family where we didn't have any any church experience, so I had never been to a church service before. I didn't know any of the ins and outs of Christianity. I didn't even know that Christmas and Easter had anything to do with one another. They were just they were just holidays. Um, so I had no knowledge of Christianity at all. And I was um, 16 years old, almost turning 17, when a friend of mine invited me to go with him to this passion play at a church in downtown Minneapolis. And it was there that I saw the Jesus story for the first time. So everything that I heard in that play was brand new to me. And um, and I was really taken by the story itself. I, I felt a real affinity with Jesus being one who was um, calling people to participate with God and saying to people that the kingdom of God is at hand and you can join in it and these miracles were a sign of God's participation in the world, and then they they, they got to the resurrection, and that was um, something that was even more stunning. Uh, I you know I've told the story so many times from back you know 25 years ago when I was 16, 17 years old, but uh, I, I remember um, uh, being so struck at the crucifixion and literally not knowing that the resurrection was coming next, right? Um, but so struck by Jesus um, screaming from from the, the cross. Father, forgive them. they don't know what they're doing mm-hmm. and it was so moving and then the resurrection came, and that that really um i mean was was um was uh life giving for me and just yeah, i felt something inside me explode with uh, with hope and with life um at that at that resurrection and to know that jesus uh, had defeated death and that all the oppression that was against him and all those things and that he was victorious. and So all that kind of stuff. And so it was quite moving and I felt my I felt something going on in, internally. And then the people uh, on the stage, you know, the, the story ended and they invited someone out to the stage to give a talk. And, and a part of that was uh, the person saying, why don't you come backstage if you'd like to hear more about their story. And so I did. And it was there that, I, that uh, we sat in a circle and met some really kind people who were, you know, who wanted to help us explain uh, help us to understand more about Christianity? And the explanation that they gave was out of a booklet, and they walked us through a booklet and and I remember at the time feeling so awkward backstage it was it was so different than uh, the things I had experienced so far. and we started going through this booklet, and the explanation in there seemed, seemed different from the story that I had seen out on the stage. And so right away I felt this dissonance about the kind of story I'd seen out on the stage and the explanation that people were explaining in the back, well, did... I didn't really have words for it, uh-huh. or you know, I couldn't really name it. Now I can look back at that booklet and and I and I now can recognize the things that struck me odd. But at the time, you know, as a 16-year-old kid, sort of emotionally filled, um, sitting in the back room, I just knew this is kind of weird now, you know, like it's kind of turned the corner.
0: Was there any uh, specific look. doctrinal piece of it that, that stuck out in your mind that d- that didn't really resonate with the story that you had seen in the passion play?
1: Yeah. I don't think it was a doctrinal piece. It was, it was an illustration that they used. It was this illustration of a bridge and God on one side of the bridge of the Canyon and humanity on the other side of the Canyon, mm-hmm. and God and humanity unable to connect with one another. And then, turn of a page, a cross was inserted into that canyon. Mm-hmm. And and I, I now understand the, the sort of stretch of a metaphor that they were using with that, but they weren't, it didn't sound to me at least, and it's just my memory or maybe me as a 16-year-old, but they didn't talk about that illustration as if it was just a metaphor.
2: Mm-hmm. They
1: talked about it as if there was actually literally a canyon, and they put these verses in it. And so it had this other notion to it that, that there was this distance, this separation between God and humanity, uh-huh. and that Jesus um, uh, made that uh, that bridge so that now God and humanity could have uh, uh, this pathway, to, which was just such a different way than to hear what Jesus was saying out on the stage, which was that the world is God, that God's the creator of the earth, that God is the giver of life, and that God invites people to participate in what God's already doing in this world, Um That 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 this this was the god of the universe and and so the idea that you had the creator of the universe trapped on the far side of some canyon seems like then and now still to me is such a strange way to frame the conversation
0: well i mean obviously that that's a uh kind of a reformation way of talking regarding man's sinfulness and um and how our sin separates us from god so you you would you would you read scripture differently regarding um, the effects of our sin and and its impact on our relationship with god
1: yeah i mean i think i read scripture accurately and and I, there may be people who like that that view of of the uh you know of of the bridge or the canyon as being an honest reflection of it but i think that that kind of language is is inaccurate and what scripture really calls for is that people live incongruently or out of sync with God or out of rhythm with God. Uh It's not an issue of distance. It's an an issue of conformity. So I think for someone to use an illustration of distance might be a culturally appropriate explanation for Mm -hmm. certain people in certain settings, but it's not a very accurate way to describe the ramification of sin in someone's life. It doesn't create distance. It creates conflict. It creates angst. And so, if someone finds—and this is what you know—I try to do with the book—if someone finds the distance as being a good metaphor for that, great. Use use a canyon all you want. I don't find it to be very helpful. In fact, I think it gets in the way. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. You know, people can use that. that that's why the, the English language and the human human constructed language is so great—that we can keep going if someone finds one explanation to not be as useful.
2: Okay. Um, there's,
1: there's no reason to get pinned in on one. Now I know there's some people in certain traditions who only who who want only a certain set of language to be used, um, and you know I think uh, I think they find themselves in difficulties if they run into to people who who don't accept those uh, those that, that that pre-established set of, of concepts.
0: Okay. So you've already established in in our conversation that you believe that you read scripture accurately so then you you believe it's possible to read scripture inaccurately
1: oh for sure yeah yeah okay
0: so um so from the passion play that you saw god played out you know the the jesus story played out in the passion play to you being it sounds like you were given like the four spiritual laws track. I, I, i'm trying to do this from memory no well. i
1: wasn't i was given the i think it was the, the uh the steps to peace with god track
0: okay i know what you're talking about i've i've seen these in my christian journey so to speak and then from yeah. there, you had you, you had some friends who took you to a was it a Burger King?
1: Yeah, I have. Uh, I had two. Uh, I had uh, the friend that I went to the Passion Play with had had connected with some uh, people from a, a, a parachurch ministry that worked with high school students. And so a week and a half later or so, we got together and they they helped to explain more about Christianity to me at that time. Okay. Um. And and so th- th- there I was met with. I mean, and these these men I, I you know, try to make a point in the book and time I'm telling this story, that these were these were dear men, they're still friends of mine. I mean, significant people in my life. I, I'm quite confident that I I wouldn't have found my way through Christianity without their love and care. So I don't have any ill will mm-hmm. uh, toward them. Um, uh, but the the presentation that they gave me was a prefabricated out of a booklet um, kind of pre- presentation again, mm-hmm. which was perhaps well suited for another people of a different experience than mine. But it really ran headlong into the kind of life that I was living with God in those intervening ten days, um, and so they went through another explanation there that they wrote on the back of a Burger King placemat mm-hmm. um, that was going on to to explain again some things about um, the story of Christianity and and how one could um, have confidence that an experience that they had they had felt was accurate to uh, the promises that God had given. So so they 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 used a, a, another illustration this time not a not a a canyon but a, a train mm-hmm. that had three cars to it, and the train uh, the three cars represented the facts of Christianity, which is the, the engine, the coal car, which is faith in those facts, and then the third car was a caboose, and that were the feelings and experiences and they they mentioned that the Train was designed to run just fine on the faith and the facts, and didn't need the experiences. Now, I think what they were trying to get at was don't 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 worry if a week from now or a day from now that that emotional high you are feeling goes away, the promises of God are still faithful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that's not what they said, and um, and it's not the impression that I was given. Rather, the impression was that Christianity is uh, well enough understood. As being about faith and facts and not about the lived experience, which is which is such a strange way to speak of it. Because how could you have faith and facts without a lived experience in the first place? Like, like the problem was the idea that you would break faith, facts, and experiences into three separate uh, three separate entities. So, mm-hmm. um, so anyway, that that was, and I write about that in the book, try, trying again to to show that uh, it's very possible to have an explanation of Christianity. That causes one to struggle without actually giving up their faith.
0: So this particular illustration, rather than making things better for you, made Christianity more difficult for you.
1: Yes, it it it, it caused me to doubt my experience and my understanding. It, it 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 destabilized me in in one of those ways that was um, uh, you know, not not pleasant or or sort of unsolvable.
2: Uh huh.
0: Because yeah, I, I look, you you actually reproduce the uh, the offending pa- uh, placemat in,
1: in your book. Yeah, I mean, I still have the original copy of that placemat.
0: Right. It, it looks like they photocopied it and put it into your book here. Yeah. And what I thought was interesting is is that you know the the question that uh, you know they apper- apparently apparently try to be answering is how to be sure you're a Christian. And at the top of it, there's a note that says truth equals absolute. Yeah. And then they've got uh, facts. Trust and feelings, and it looks kind of like an epistemology uh, model to me rather than anything else.
1: Yeah, yeah very much. Well, I mean, I, I came to recognize that more when I went to college and started studying um, issues of argument and rhetoric and epistemology and so on. I started to understand, boy, here's where the indoctrination for me in a certain way of understanding truth and putting together a certain hermeneutic of understanding and then an epistemology mm-hmm. um, was, was, was taking place. At the time, sitting in that Burger King, talking to these guys who, you know, were going to become significant contributors to my to my life, um, I wasn't thinking like they're you know know, they're 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 indoctrinating me into a particular epistemology. (laughs) But when I I looked back on it, and I carried it in my wallet for probably ten years or more without having looked at it, and then I opened it up and looked at it after I had done uh, a lot more reflecting on how it is that we believe and why we believe and so Mm -hmm. on. Um, I looked at it, and and I remember saying to somebody who was with me at the time, looking at this is, I, I feel like those tobacco, uh, those tobacco lawyers, who were fighting against the tobacco uh, uh, industry, when they found the the, the uh, memo that said that the tobacco industry knew that it caused cancer. You know? Oh wow! It, it was like I had the smoking gun. Like I knew people. I. I could have sworn that somebody told me once that truth equals absolute. I knew they did, and here it is right here. Here's the proof you know truth was reduced down into a particular hermeneutical argument as opposed to being you know the the big beautiful life of god that uh, that trumps everything. It was reduced down into a particular uh, um, uh, philosophical argument so so it felt it felt sort of uh, like wow i I had no idea there was so much loaded in that in that thing.
0: So you think that particular epistemology is fraught with problems then? I mean Yeah,
1: I think I I think that that when someone yeah, I mean I think there are a number of things going on there, but but I think the idea that that you equate truth with absolute Mm -hmm. is to minimize truth. Okay. So let's we just use the word absolute, right? right? So truth has to have a meaning. It doesn't just equal, right? It's not a synonym. Absolute is not a synonym, and that's what they said there is that it was. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of thing that goes on and on. And I have people uh, pestering at me, bickering at me all the time about um, wanting to know what I think about absolutes and really not wanting to care much about what I think about truth, Mm -hmm. almost as if they believe the same thing, that truth – is is absolute, like they're they're synonyms to
0: one another. People speak about them as if they are. And help me uh, get where the boundaries are here. Um, For instance, I'm looking at the train analogy here, facts, faith, and feelings. And let's let's take it down to uh, a grade school analogy here. Um, It doesn't matter if I feel that 2 plus 2 equals 97. um, Isn't it absolutely true that it equals 4?
1: Well, yeah, it's it's true that it equals four. Yes, inside of you know, with if, if if math rules have any meaning, uh-huh. then yes, it equals four. Right. Of of course, but but that's contingent. It's not absolutely. true. I mean, it's just it's impro- It's probably improper grammar. Okay. But it might even be something more. It's like when I get on an airplane and the and the flight attendant says, um, "Everybody, we need you to put one bag underneath your seat in front of you and one in the overhead carrier because we have a very full flight."
0: You must fly Southwest.
1: Well, well, the, 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 the word full shouldn't be qualified with the word very. It's either full or it's not. Now, I get the point that she's making. She's, she's, um, she's accentuating the idea that it really, really is full, mm-hmm. but that's just – that's a colloquialism. That's not actually a statement of reality, very full
0: so you're using some pretty pretty tight theological not theological but uh, epistemological precision here in the language you 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 know in you don't think yeah. modifiers like absolute or what was uh francis Schaeffer's truly true you know yeah, true truth or something true yeah. truth yeah. that, that yeah. those those are not those are not uh, helpful in in no in, they're
1: quite they're quite helpful but they're helpful as rhetoric uh-huh they're, they're, they're helpful to make a point they're, they're 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 helpful as flavor they're not they're not accurate. And, and I mean, look, we all do it all the time. You know, I just did it right there. We all do it all the time. And anybody listening knows what I mean by that. And they probably shouldn't stop and parse that out and go, well, people who don't have the capacity to speak don't do it all the time. So you're a liar, right? That's not what, that's not how language functions. Uh-huh. But a document like this, that's not using a, a, a helpful colloquialism or a helpful stress stressor. It's 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 not using a, um, a, a a simple you know modifier. It's actually saying truth is absolute. Now, now that they're doing something there, and I, I haven't you know I didn't spend a lot of time in this chapter or anywhere else around that issue. Mm-hmm. I just know that that is a really big deal for a lot of people. And they if someone then says, look in philosophical terms, absolutes are an improper description because you don't use them when you're talking about philosophy. Mm-hmm. It functions differently. It becomes a technical term, right? And when you start using a, a technical term in non-technical ways, there's nothing wrong with that unless you're trying to make a technical point. So so I, I don't know that that's what these guys were particularly doing. I think rather what they were trying to do is trying to help me understand that, look, the promise God made God's going to be faithful to his promise.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, here's
1: what I would have loved to have seen written on the top of the page, was God's going to fulfill the promise that, that, God, that he made. Mm-hmm. God's going to come through. God's not a liar. I'm all for that. Right? Okay. That's not what this says. Now, to some people, this is shorthand for that. So they look at it, and they go, oh, I got you. It's shorthand. Truth equals absolute is shorthand for God's not a liar. You can trust God. Mm-hmm. But for other people, it's not shorthand. It's saying something else. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to help people understand that maybe your frustration with Christianity is that other people have been using shorthand and you didn't know it. And so give them the benefit of the doubt and give Christianity another look if you have felt that you've been, as my title is, left out, left behind, or let down. Okay, so, so so that's where I'm going with all
0: that. Okay, so let me let me ask a follow up question then. You know, come, I want to come back to what you had talked about why you wrote the book. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the phrases I hear you and Tony Jones and McLaren talk about is finding that you know where God is acting in the world and getting getting behind it or getting involved. How do you know when God is acting in the world?
1: Oh man, it's a uh, you know. It, my own experience. There are so there are so many indicators that help you with that. Okay. Some of it is to know the the the, the story that we're involved in, uh, the, the story that we've that we've read, uh, that we've lived. The, some of it is the the scripture itself that would indicate that. Some of it is an act of the spirit on an individual's will and an individual's sensibility. Some of it is is just recognizing from from God's presence in us that there's a there's a presence of God in the world, so there are so many ways, and I think that many of the ways um, you know that work for me don't work for another person, and some of the ways that work for one uh, don't necessarily work for me. So I, I am I am more convinced than ever that God is is involved in the world in in most of the time, all the time, like. It's, it's, to try to find places where God's not involved in the world would be have to be the task as opposed to where God is involved in the world, okay, And I know that's different for some people. Some people think that God's involvement in the world is very limited, and you would go around you know like a like a butterfly hunter trying to find that very special butterfly and scouring the earth's surface, trying to come up with a place where God's involved. Mm-hmm. Um I think this, the the scriptures uh, teach us that. God's activity in the world bounds from, you know, if there was an end to an end, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh and and there's no there's no way to get to, to get away from it that the the presence that the earth is the presence of the Lord and and so yeah, I I'm I I just think that, that how we find God's activity in the world um is is informed by so many of the the, the Christian practices, so many of the of the scriptures that are helpful in that way. To guide us and direct us, and so much of the active work of the spirit in the world today. Okay, you, you know, and and the the larger point of this of this uh, of this chapter in the book is not so much to pick on the the fact faith and feeling construction. Mm-hmm. It's more to pick on the use of generic descriptions being applied to individual people's lives. Okay. The, the the bigger struggle that I have is not that someone should write a better track. The issue I have is with the use of tracks, right? I think what we have what a better way forward is to use the the full you know to borrow a bible phrase the full counsel of scripture use the full story of of genesis through revelation and to help people find their own story inside that larger context rather than to create a third party application of a track and say think about it in these terms I mean, I just happen to love the Bible so much. I think it's so chock full of of the kinds of, of directions and stories and instructions and, and, uh, and, and prayer that we need that very often we can find in an evangelistic or in a discipleship or an encouragement purpose a story inside Scripture to to find uh, commonality with someone's lived experience. Mm-hmm. That I'm more bothered by the idea that that people like to outsource to these third party tracks. That's that's the part that's so befuddling to me. Okay. And if you didn't have the Bible, I'd be all for it. But man, it's so good and rich and full. Um, I mean, it just seems like that would that should be the comparisons that we're making for people, not into these abstract uses of. Philosophical terms, or trains, or canyons. I mean,
0: um, what do you think of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed?
1: Yeah, I think they're I think they're great, and I think they function in much of the way I'm getting at. They fun- they function as these statements of we believe these things. Mm-hmm. But then they're in a difficult place, and I try to write about this in the book. By the third century, fifth century, nineteenth century, you have uh, such a cultural change that's gone on that to simply use the Hebrew uh, um, constructs of the Old Testament didn't fulfill the questions that people had from their own cultural environment that wasn't Hebrew. Um, So whenever someone is explaining the Bible Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or explaining anything, you're doing cultural translation. Mm -hmm. And so I try to to say, look, some of these people make cultural translations that to them worked, and to me, didn't seem to work at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that it's not to minimize the brilliance of that cultural explanation, but it is to name it as a cultural explanation. So I'm not saying if I use the Bible as um, as the, the source material for illustrative connection with someone's life, that somehow um, I, I now am not doing cultural translation. I am doing cultural translation. I'm just using the very story that I want people to be connected to as the source of that translation, as opposed to... Yeah, you know, skipping it all together and just going straight
0: on to them right and you and you bring that up in the book and you know you give an example uh, i i think from an african tribe of of how they you know they took the the basics of you know the basic tenets of uh the christian faith that we believe teach and confess statements yeah. and yeah. uh and, right and they and you and they translated it into something that that they could culturally apprehend yeah. and, and yet the uh the statements of truth, in fact, as, as being taught in the Scripture, were completely intact in the in the example that you gave. Even though it didn't read like the Nicene Creed, still the truths behind it were the same. So, um, I mean, I thought that was a very great example. So my question is, you know, going back to the metaphor, metaphor, um, you know, you, you have an issue with things being distilled down and, and you like the full narrative, and yet you sang the praises of a, of a culturally adapted creed and so i'm trying to figure out where's the boundaries here what what exactly am i to understand that you're suggesting could be done better for christianity when you're singing the praises of a creed which distills things down to pretty concise statements
1: oh yeah yeah and and that's a that's a really insightful question that's that's a good one um because i'm not trying to say that the creed's Distill things down. In fact, I don't think they do. Okay. I think the function of a creed was to open things up. If you look at the history of why creeds are, were utilized, it was because there was division within the church. And the function of the creed was to say, we have a lot of things we disagree about, but we all hold together to these things. So it was an act of commonality, not an act of distilling down. So it was saying, of all the things we have, we held these in common. It was an act of commonality, not an act of distilling them down. And so that's why I think the creeds function differently, I would say, than a modern-day statement of faith. A modern-day statement of faith is trying to say, we believe these things is in contrast to that guy over there who believes that thing. But a creed was trying to say, there's a lot of disagreement about these things, but here's what we know we do hold to. And it was never meant to be the end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. It was meant to be a coming together, so the conversation could continue.
0: Well, let me ask you this: If I'm an Arian and back in the fourth century, and the Nicene yeah. Creed is, is published, and yeah. I still believe that Jesus isn't God, isn't you know God, but I believe that he's a godlike being, it just sounds like I've been excluded from the Christian community. What am I to do? What am I to make of
1: that creed? Well, it's a bit of a hypothetical for both of us, I guess. I guess it depends on what kind of Aryan you are, right? Um, but the, the, the function of it then was to, to try to include all who could possibly be included in, in the faith. It wasn't meant to say, we want those guys out. Now, I think guys like Augustine did that. I think that there are certain writers and there are certain theologians who did it, but the function of the creeds themselves were not to do that. And I think that people took those creeds and then used them in ways that they shouldn't have, but that wasn't the function of the creed. So this is where it's a little hard to say how did people of certain traditions use those creeds differs from the functionality of the creed.
0: All right, we're going to take a break here, pause the interview. If you would like to email me regarding your thoughts and ideas about what you've hear, heard today in today's interview with Doug Padgett, you can do so by emailing me at talkback talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com that's talkback at FightingForTheFaith.com, dot com, and we'll be right back.
1: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
3: Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are hand-picked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com.
0: All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and we're in the middle of uh, an interview that I did yesterday with Doug Padgett, Pastor Doug Paget of Solomon's Porch. Doug Paget of the Emergent Church Movement, author of the book, A Christianity Worth Believing. So far, have you heard a Christianity that's uh, worth believing? Has what you heard been true, biblically? That's for you to decide. So today I'm not giving much commentary. I really want to get this out to you all, and uh, would love to hear back your thoughts on what you've heard Doug Paget say. And uh, you can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at dot com. And without any further ado, we're going to dive right back into our interview with uh, Doug Paget of the Emergent Church.
1: Mm-hmm. But again, that's uh, that's not the argument that I was trying to make in the book. Okay. The argument I'm trying to make in the book is, hey, um, uh, recognize that you know if your grandma or your friend or your pastor at your church was really uh, pushing a particular view on you, that's, that's their prerogative to do. Don't give up on the faith because of it.
0: Okay. You had said that uh, if, you wouldn't have had a problem if at the top of it, rather than saying truth is absolute, if it had said something to the effect of, you know, God is going to keep his promises. Yeah. What do you believe to be the promises of God? You know. Well,
1: I didn't exactly say I wouldn't have had a problem I said it would have been better to me that way. Okay, um, well, I probably still would have struggled with the whole, you know, train business. Okay, thing, but, um, so what, what? are the,
0: what are those promises that you 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 would have struggled less with?
1: Well, well, there there, I mean, there's a Bible full of them. Uh huh. Um, what
0: yeah, do you consider so. to be the primary and, and central promises of Scripture? Uh, I don't
1: do that with promises. See, See, and this might be a different epistemological approach that we take. I, I don't think when you take truth you say, Well, here's the primary one and here's the secondary one. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything secondary about a promise of God. So so they all count. And that's that's maybe that's what you're hearing when you said you heard things from people like me and Brian and Tony and others. Um when we're talking about the narrative, it's just what's being left out. You know, I, I try to push that in the chapter on the Bible. Right. Um, to try to say, you know, look if you if you memorize Three hundred Bible verses, like I did, you know, good for me and good for you. But it's one percent of the verses in the Bible. There's ninety nine percent that you haven't memorized, and I think that's really important. And I don't, I don't feel very comfortable with this idea that there are some promises of God that are that are central and other ones that are tangential. I mean, if, if I heard someone saying that, uh, the first thing that would pop to my head is, "Well, who are you to decide which ones are primary and which ones are tangential?" Mm-hmm. So I. The question itself sort of begins with a level of comfort that that i don't I don't possess
0: okay that's fair enough um let me let me circle back then um you know coming back to like uh paul's writing uh his epistle to the uh, corinthians, first Corinthians, he says that he chose to know nothing among them except for Christ and him crucified, mm-hmm. and then in chapter fifteen, he reminds them of the gospel that he preached mm-hmm. um how How do you define the gospel? It's good news, but I mean what's it's what's the bad news? What's the good news? I mean, how did the, what's the interplay between them and why is you know, if the gospel is a, a message that's important enough to be uh passed along in the Christian tradition and Paul even in Galatians says if somebody preaches a different gospel, let him be anathema. Yeah. you know, the, the, it seems to me that there there's a certain level of importance regarding...
2: Right, uh, well, and that's
1: what I try to do in the whole book, right? Is I try to explain this is what the gospel is. Okay. <laughs> but, I, that, but the idea that somehow that's a statement... Okay. ...is, is again, maybe it gets back to the same root of this kind of epistemological attitude that there would be a statement would be better or one part of it would be more appealing or more accurate to the, what the gospel is than another. I just don't think we should be competing one part of the of the gospel story against another part so the gospel story is is creation and regeneration and fulfillment and reconciliation and healing and beauty it's all of these things but the, the, the gospel of god is is jesus the gospel of god is the life of of people who live that gospel afterward and there are going to be a whole series of statements that are going to that are going to make that up but to pick one or two of those statements over the others, I, first off, I think would be a misreading of what Paul was trying to get at. I mean, I think if Paul heard someone say, um, well, hey, you know, boil that, forget everything else you read or don't worry about the rest of what Paul wrote. I'll just give you this one line and this is really what Paul is getting at as the gospel. Um, I'm not sure he'd be comfortable with that. Um, so, so I think that the, the, the gospel is this living, beautiful, good news that always, um, strikes at the heart of where someone finds themselves. So when someone um, uh, feels that that God is there is is working against them to hear that they are loved by God and they are the beloved one and that and that God loves so much that He gave His Son, that rings as gospel truth. And when somebody else hears that um, that they should not um, uh, love only those who are like them and only be kind to those who are like them, and the, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, but they have to love God themselves and their enemy that that's gospel, that these are all gospel. And so, so you know, I mean, I, I kind of get picked on sometimes by some people on the Internet who who like to write blogs when, when I try to argue that this, the Bible is the smallest version we should ever have of the written story. right? Like, that's as reduced as it should get. Mm-hmm. You get any more reduced than that, and I think you're leaving out some really important pieces of this whole thing. So when I hear essentials of the gospel, I hear the entire scriptures. And the life of the people who've lived that, um, that 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 gospel call. So for me, the gospel is scriptures in Jesus and the Spirit active and working today in God's uh, reconciliation and healing and blessing of the world. That's gospel.
0: Okay, fair enough. Um, one of the things I found myself resonating with um, in your book was your critique on how people use the Bible. And particularly, you'd already talked about this in our interview here, but I want to flesh this out a little bit of how people will take, you know, get a little box of 300 Bible verses, you know, put them on their mirror while they're shaving and 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 memorize verses completely out of context. Um, uh, I thought that what you had to say there was actually very helpful and useful and actually resonated with me because it's one of my pet peeves when uh, people quote to me Bible verses out of context, it's like, do you even know what that says? we were to put it back into the narrative. Right. And so um, I thought that that was a, a very, a very helpful uh, piece of it. And so I would actually agree with what you had to say there. But uh, one of the things you took issue with, though, is, is that you said that um, you don't like it when people use the Bible as a weapon. Can you yeah. explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, well, um, there's you know there's this one passage where Paul's describing the, the, the Christian engagement with the with the spirit, and he uses the phrase that, the, that you're to guard yourself with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shield of faith, and the, and the shoes of peace. Um so i missing one in there, and the sword of the spirit. Uh-huh. Um, and so people then have taken that, and then it says the sword of the spirit, comma, which is which is the word of God, and that. Um, so then people take that to mean the words of God, which is a little pet peeve of mine. But anyway. Um, to, to, to take it to mean the Bible, and then they use the Bible, they would say, as something to uh, be an offensive weapon to uh, attack other people and try to um, devour. Um, and you know, it also gets partnered with, with the other the other passage where where Paul says um, to Timothy, um, the, the the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and is able to separate you know, that which can't be separated. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's you know it's sharp like that. But again, that's that's and then it gets taken into our day and people end up saying, well, if you're offended by the Bible, okay, you know, and I should pull this out and I'll use it like this weapon. And and you put that together with people with a quick wit and a sharp tongue, and all of a sudden you have people using the Bible in ways to bring about um, uh, frustration and disagreement mm-hmm. and gossip and slander ways that uh, i think work so counter to work against so much of what um what the, the function of, of the bible is which is to help people to live a godly life and to help them know how they can function in their life so that they can participate in god's uh, hope streams and, and imagination for the world
0: okay so um let me ask you i, I want to find Find exactly where you're talking about here. I mean, I, I think we can all think of examples of people that we know, and I can even talk talk about times when I've done it myself. Um, sharp tongue, sharp wit, bad mood, bad combo. If uh, somebody disagrees with uh, the theology with theology that I understand, but is there is there a, um, a proper use of scripture to correct theological and doctrinal error? Oh yeah, yeah. It, yeah okay. I mean, its
1: prime function is for correction, teaching, and training and righteousness. Yeah, for sure. Okay. <laughs> for sure.
0: Uh, so what, but, when you're talking about yeah. it being used as a weapon, you're not talking about somebody who carefully says, you know, I understand that you think that God is a toasted cheese sandwich deity who lives just beyond the rings of Saturn, but the Bible doesn't say that. Let me show you what Scripture does tell us about God.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, I guess that would work for somebody. I, I just, I mean, all the people who I know who believe things that are so, you know, so, so much in the camp that you described, you know, a toasted cheese sandwich outside the rings of Saturn. Um, tend not to give the Bible very much credence in the first place, mm-hmm. which is part of the point I try to make in that chapter, which is, look, people believe the Bible because they believe that it's from God. So they're really giving authority to God, which is the right thing. I just don't know anybody who would, in their right mind, say, well, I don't really have much thought about your God, but your Bible, boy, I'm really going to listen to that thing. <laughs> um, it would just, be, it would be so bizarre and, and, and counter to the counter to the scripture itself and you know, it's um I mean we're not supposed to worship the Bible and uh you know, I have some friends who say that people they hang around with talk about a, a Trinity as the Father, Son and Holy Scriptures. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm not sure that's that's the best way to take it. So so I don't even know that you that that using the Bible in that kind of way, like to teach someone that they're wrong about something, if they don't already Give authority to the Bible, uh-huh, I can't imagine that working very well,
0: well, what about our prosperity uh friends you know the, on on you oh, know,
1: that's a different story because they give authority to the Bible yeah, right? they
0: give authority to the Bible and yet they've they've turned the scriptures into some kind of a you just got to understand the proper principles, apply them to your life, claim the right things, and and you'll have health and prosperity i mean yeah. you, you think that's a, a misuse of God's word?
1: Oh yeah, yeah I do, but you know, but but you know I want to just pick on them, right? I mean, I, th- I think anybody who I, I use misuse of God's word in a fairly generous way, meaning if someone interprets it wrongly or expresses it wrongly or 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 um, uh, puts an accent on a place where the accent wasn't meant to be, mm-hmm. that they've used it in a way that it wasn't intended to be used for sure. So that's a misuse. Okay. Um, but. The greater reason that people do that is because they have a cultural, a culturally created understanding of what God's all about, uh-huh. and then they're using the Bible to reinforce that. I, I think, and, in, and that's the struggle we all have, right? right. And I we think all... in the case
0: of the prosperity gospel, I think you you probably you got the right order there. I, I see the prosperity gospel as as a very uniquely American phenomenon, as at least in its creation, it it. it, it Addresses American uh, capitalistic uh, issues and desires pretty pretty straightforwardly.
1: Yeah, yeah, m- maybe. I mean, I, m- my experience with with prosperity theology has been far more in developing countries than in the United States because uh-huh. I don't spend a lot of time with the United States. But it's quite powerful and the and the most prevalent expression of Christianity in Africa mm-hmm. and Central America. So I don't know that it's distinctly that. But 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 I when, when I'm. What I try to point out regularly when I can is, okay, look, yeah, in Pentecostalism, especially prosperity theology, Pentecostalism, it's easy to trace that back to its cultural roots and you can see where it comes from and you can you can put the pieces back together, you know. But you can also do that with Reformed theology. Like, I, look, God, God bless the Reformers, and I'm not trying to take a thing away from the great contribution they've made to faith, but their organization of understanding scripture came out of a cultural understanding of the world that they brought to the scriptures, not that they got from it. So when, as soon as one group says, well, those guys over there, you know, do a John McCain, that guy over there, Mm -hmm. what he's doing is he's starting with his culture. But what I'm doing is I'm starting with scripture. That's First off, it's rude. Secondly, it's so inaccurate. It's not true either. We all start with a set of presuppositions. And what we ought to do is say, we start with a set of presuppositions and the larger community of faith, both those the people that we see from other traditions and the scripture should teach us and correct us when we have gotten it wrong because of the presuppositions we brought to it. And anybody, in my view, anybody who thinks that they're beyond that that they're culturally neutral when it comes to reading the Bible. I think that's the real fatal flaw because they're not. Okay. Now, all the rest of us know that they're not. Right. Let me, let me. And so okay. when they talk like they are, whether they be the reformers or the orthodox or the Hasidic Jews or the Pentecostals or emergent types or, you know, independent fundamentalist Baptist whatever, I, when people say, I'm neutral, it's just the Bible, not me, that's that's like that that's just beyond the pale so you know? um, it's so so not right
0: have you read uh, c s lewis's uh, he there was back in the i think late 40s early 50s uh, there was a a publishing house that published a translation of uh, athanasius uh why the god man and um and lewis wrote the introduction to it and it's a fine little essay called uh, the importance of reading old books Oh, well. And, and uh, Lewis basically uses this analogy and this metaphor. He says that um, fish cannot see the water that they're swimming in. Right. And so what happens is is that each century, each generation has its own set of of things that it can't see because they're just assumed questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's it's like furniture in your house. You you don't see it because it's there the whole time. But the furniture yeah. moves from century to century to century. And so he makes a very strong case in, you know in that little essay on the importance of reading old books, because the questions in the third century are different than the questions in the second century, right. century, the nineteenth century, the twentieth century, and even at the time of the reformers i don't, you know personally i i don't have a problem with saying, yeah, there's definitely cultural influences that are going to affect the lenses that i that I wear when i 'm reading the Bible, and one of the ways in overcoming that is by looking at the uh, the the Christian writings in history, through the millennia, instead of just the latest books that have come out, because those are going to all have the same set of assumptions that I have right now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I I think that it's I think you're right in the sense of saying that yes, there's cultural influence. The question I would have is is that okay? Let's go back to the reformers. There's definitely cultural influence that plays in their biblical interpretation. The question I have is. It has that, that cultural influence distorted their reading of Scripture so that they're not conveying its meaning accurately? And can you give an example?
1: Yeah, I think sometimes it is, yeah, for sure. Um, I think some of the view of God and, and how they would articulate an understanding of God and the the, the character and the nature of God um, definitely does. I think that there's certain reformers who had certain views about government and about the role of women in government and the role of women in society that influenced the reading of Scripture. I think that there's... Uh, their their understanding and their teaching about scripture when it has to do with the cosmos that was uh, influenced by the fact that they understood the earth to be a flat disc covered by a dome even even as late as some of the later reformers where they didn't know what to do about um how to understand scripture in light of a, of of a changing cosmology so yeah for sure they do i mean yeah and they, there's times where those teachings um, and you know, inside the great thing about the Reformation is it's not a single stroke, right? It's uh, it spans a couple hundred years, 250 years, it spans different countries, different languages, and whole different theological positions. So mm-hmm. whether you're talking about a Calvinist or Zwingli or or Luther, you're you're talking about people with really different views from one another, mm-hmm. right? So depending on who your favorite reformer is, you know, I'm in Lutheran land here, and so when we say reformer around here, it tends to mean. Um, you know Martin Luther, uh, well, Martin Luther had some views on things that I think were quite distorted for sure, and I think John Calvin had some views on things and and you know Doug Padgett has some views on things that are quite distorted, so i 'm hoping that the community of faith stays alive long enough to root those out of the system because i wasn 't able to see them for myself that 's not a fatal flaw to the other good things that I have to say mm-hmm. and the and also to the other good things reformers had to say it ought not be seen as a fatal flaw
0: okay. All right, this will be our last question because I, I got to watch my time and yours here. Uh, there's a yeah, because
1: loop- I'm paying for the call. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can't believe I talked you into coming on my show and paying for the call. You know, I, I well, of
1: course I'd come on your show, <laughs> but but I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm recording this myself and I'd love to be able to use it on my own little podcast. Oh, oh, if you know I'd mind
0: I'd be happy to send you a clean MP3 so that you can uh, use it cleanly if you'd like. Sure. Um, h- here's uh, here's my next question then for you. Um, there's been a you've obviously the emergent church is. Uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion and debate and uh, going on about the emergent church and pyromaniacs uh, you know they they have what they call the po motivational posters and they recently did one of you and it had to do with the platonic thinking and the claim is is that uh, whenever somebody disagrees with you you call them platonic but you're not sure what that means but uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good one, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hey. What kind of question is that?
0: Are you some kind of plateness? <laughs> Are you some kind of Platonist? Yeah. I what's funny is I've heard you use it, but uh it wasn't until I read your book that I really began to understand where what direction you're trying to come from there. And uh, according to you in your book there's this there's this dualistic way of thinking that has crept into into Christianity according to you that came about as a result when Christianity goes from being a, a, a something that's primarily of a Hebrew tradition in the, and is adopted and sucked up into Greek culture. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, and that's a you know, and, and that's a good point. It's a little inaccurate in my book. I mean, the the, the difficulty of a populist book like this is that I have to take some broad sweep Sometimes
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, Judaism had felt some deep uh, effects of of Platonic thought itself. In fact, um, many would argue that the Sadducees were 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 influenced greatly by Platonic thought in in the first century of Jesus. But what I I was trying to argue was that uh, the the Jesus narrative that we read is deeply rooted in an Old Testament vision. And in an Isaiah the prophet, you know, like Jesus functions in this Isaiah the prophet-like role. So he quotes Isaiah a lot. He opens the scroll the way Luke tells it in the synagogue and finds the part where it it says in Isaiah... um, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so he's taking on an Isaiah-like like, um, uh, a mantle. And so it's functioning that way inside of Jewish community. And within a few hundred years, there's a different set of questions being faced by Christian people. Mm-hmm. In, that, in the early centuries, the question was, what's God's participation in the world for, for Jesus? To Greek thinking people, and I, I go sort of broad, and I, I guarantee you, I've gotten emails from people who are Greeks, and they tell me that's not just Greeks. Like, <laughs> okay, so I guess But in the broad sense of things, Gentiles use Paul's kind of language: the Greeks and the and the Hebrews. Mm-hmm. The Gentile had a different cultural orientation around um, uh, the, the, the 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 functionality of human beings and God. And so, I try to argue that some of the reason why we've ended up with a kind of Christianity that ends up being um, dualistic, meaning separating spirit from body to such a degree that we have in Christianity today, can be taken back to when Christianity made a move to not only make sense to the Hebrews, but to also make sense to the Gentiles and the Greeks. Okay. And the Gentiles and the Greeks had a very complicated set of issues. I, in the book, sort of grab all those together into one little bag and call it Greek thoughts and, you know a couple of names in the telling of this story so people would, you know, click into somewhere in their, their, you know, maybe in the world civ Civ class Mm -hmm. and could sort of recall some of this. So it's accurate, but it's not meant to be a precise reading of the distinction between Aristotelian dualism and Platonic dualism. Okay. So I'm not doing that. Now, there's some people, those pyromaniac kids over there, they're just big into that because they're proud to be Platonists, you know, and they're proud to be Aristotelian. And, you know, I'm like, good for you. But your version, it doesn't work for most people in the world. Okay. Your your version, it's the problem to many of us, not the help. So so we kind of bicker back and forth, and they must have a lot of time on their hands because they make little posters but so anyway, that's 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 where I was going.
0: With. Okay, I, I I get it. So um, the so basically, you make the claim that this this sharp dualism that exists is this idea that the matter and the flesh is somehow evil and bad, and the spirit is good, which you identify as a gnostic notion, not a Christian notion. Yeah. Okay. So uh, and you believe that this dualistic thinking. It still permeates uh, the church and, and the Christian community and uh, and so whenever whenever you call somebody a Platonist, you're trying to point out the fact that they're engaging in some kind of a of a dualism that uh, that isn't really necessarily biblical.
1: Yeah, well, but I you know, honest to goodness, I don't know that I've ever called somebody a Platonist. I had one conversation with a guy named Todd Frio, where he was trying to ask me about heaven as a place. Uh And I said, Todd, it sounds to me like you're using whole categories that aren't of interest to me. You're using categories of heaven as a place rather than a reality. And I just don't... That that comes from a particular Greek orientation, that there is a location. And this gets complicated, but he brought up complicated issues, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's... to most people's minds, you know, grandma went to a place, but then they, you ask them for a minute, what kind of place does the soul go to? Mm -hmm. You know, like, is there a boundary to it? Is there a wall? And, you know, and see, people know that that's not how it, how it really goes. They just use that as the the quick and the shorthand. Mm -hmm. And then some people actually believe that. They actually believe that the soul will be, will be separated from the body and will live on in a soul existence. And I think that that's, as Close to platonic dualism, as you get, and I think guys like Todd hold to that, mm-hmm. and it 's shocking to me because we are resurrection people. What we hold to is the resurrection of the body, not the not the de- departure of the soul from the body well let me- and I know that you know that all of a sudden you know like these people all think that people like me don 't care about the Bible, you know uh uh-huh. I-, I do care about the Bible, and what i 'm going to continue to proclaim is the resurrection, not the separation of the soul which will then will be freed from its chains of this you know mortal body now the problem is that in certain parts of the bible you hear that very kind of language
2: mm-hmm.
1: right i mean anybody who studied the writings of paul knows that paul bounced back and forth and somehow in his head held these two things together in a way that you know uh, i haven't been able to wrap, wrap my head around so and i don't think he's expecting me to i think he's you know, he he wasn't thinking about me in the...
0: in the. Uh, well, in the, I mean, right definitely right. the Bible's not about you, Doug. So. <laughs> the Bible's what? It's not about you. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, Paul did, did say, you know, I my question is, do you believe in an intermediate state? You know, Paul said to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Yeah. I mean...
1: Uh, but tr- I think what Paul's getting at there, I think Paul would also say to be in the bodies to be present with the Lord. hmm So I don't think he's saying that in the body you're not present with the Lord. After the body you are present with the Lord. No, I I think what he's trying to say is it doesn't matter if you're in the body or out of the body. I think his argument there is to say all these questions that we all have about how all this stuff works, here's what we know. You're going to be present with God. That's the good news, right? He's not trying to make some statement about the, the ordering of, of intermittent afterlife stages,
2: mm-hmm. it
1: just holy moly, if that's what he's getting at in the middle of writing the, you know this this epistle this this encouragement, this blessing to these people and and that's what he's getting at is he really now he wants to pause for a minute and make a statement about the the nature of cosmology as it relates to the human soul no, no, he's not, and so when someone does it with takes those passages and creates that, that's fine. they can say, this is my source material, and now it's me talking. But they don't get to say the Apostle Paul says such and such if that isn't what he said.
0: Well, then here's my question for you, Doug. If uh, if the Lord should tarry and uh, you, you you crump sometime in the next 50 years, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is more than likely for us because I think you and I are both in our 40s. Uh, yeah. By the way, I was really jealous of your blog pictures of your uh, your trip to France. Um, no. that, it wasn't right. That
1: was it wasn't right. And, it wasn't right. I just showed the pictures the other day and that, I was jealous of myself. That
0: was just not like, right. Like what
1: kind of guy gets to go and stay in a villa on the French Riviera?
0: I'm staying in Schomburg, <laughs> Illinois. Dude, in,
1: I've, I've stayed probably at that. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with you.
0: Anyway, so, uh, so when, uh, when you die, okay, mm-hmm. is there an intermediate state? What is your understanding of, of... You know, what happens to somebody who experiences the separation of body and soul in a very violent act called death?
1: Yeah, well, I I think that that we are present, that that God's presence, that God's participation, that God's care is existent now and will be existent when I take my last breath. And so I think the good news that we can proclaim is that we will not be abandoned and that death will not be the victor. Mm-hmm. Now, how that all gets, you know, fettered out is is probably speculation. Well, probably. I'll, I'll use that. It's probably speculation beyond what any of us should put too much confidence in. Okay. Outside of, God's care for us is consistent.
0: Okay, so you're pretty much an agnostic in that sense.
1: No, I just think that none of the versions that I've thought of or have heard – Seem like they're going to hold much water.
2: Okay.
1: I'm not an agnostic on it. I'm just I, I don't think there is one yet. Um, I mean, and 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 I'm not I'm not overly torn by it. I mean, I try to write this chapter in the book about heaven and about this little boy whose whose brother died, you know, just after birth, and and you know the the boy's you know making statements that are to that that are meant to encourage his family. And so I think we need to make all the statements we can make to help people understand the reality that God's care for them will never be extinguished.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if someone needs to say, your, your uncle crossed the, pearly, the, the, the the line of the pearly gates and stepped into the presence of God, okay, say it. Say it. I mean, proclaim it. Become poets. But when people take the words of the poet that are meant to inspire and to teach truth and they turn it into exacting language of the engineer, that's when I think we've done something funny. Okay. And so I'm all for it. Like I was just reading over the weekend um, the book of Revelation in its similarity to the book of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And, man, it's just it, it it's awesome, right? Uh, but, you know, you start pausing on some of those words and start doing some, you know, Ryrie study uh, connection of, you know, Thompson chain reference interlinking. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're like, holy moly, I just turned this thing into a math problem, you know, old school math, not math. That new
0: math, that new, you know. Right. And it
2: create a beautiful math.
1: Create
0: well, so a beautiful math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey, Doug, I'd like to thank you for uh, coming on our show. And, oh, it's certainly my pleasure. And uh, I, hopefully we'll talk again in the future. Yeah. Anytime, and, and thanks for paying for the and, phone call. And good luck at the Reveal Conference. All right. Thank you. Well, there you have it. What'd you think? Do you agree with him? What do you think of his ideas? Email me. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. Until next time, God bless you.